Great to see everybody here. Third service, most spiritual people in the church come to the third service. Um, people last night, they're just, you know, trying to get out of town. I don't know what they were here for on Saturday night. Early church, they just want to get to lunch. You guys have been spending hours with the Lord prior to, prior to coming. And that's why the third service is the most spiritual people in the church. And so great to see everybody here. Love this congregation. I, too, am on vacation in California right now with Pastor Jesse. So, But he called me a few months ago and said, hey, listen, would there be a chance? I said, you know what? I, I, I usually do a couple Sundays in the month of July, and I would love to come to Eternity Church. And so uh, I asked my wife if I could have permission to travel for a day. I flew in yesterday to Minneapolis, and I was just grabbed my car because I could get here quicker in my car from Minneapolis driving, I thought, and I got right to the li state line there between Minnesota and Iowa, and one of the plagues of Egypt hit yesterday. I mean, the rain, the lightning, people were pulling off the road. I thought, what? So it, it took a longer to get here. I got here about five minutes after the service started, um, which that never, never would happen in my life, and so I ran in there and got some clothes and I, I told the second service that I didn't drive naked. I went, I was dressed. I put my pre speaking clothes on. Got in here about 6.15 last night, and we had a great, great service, and we had a great time this morning early, and uh, just so honored and so grateful for just this congregation in Des Moines and Pastor Jesse and Lauren, and so, and the team is just spectacular. Everybody's just really good here, and there's a great upward, optimistic, faith-filled, generous uh, culture of honor that is very, very legit. And so um, I hope uh, Jesse keeps asking me back at least once a year, maybe twice, I don't know, um, to come and teach and, and speak. But how many, this is our first time together. You, we've never uh, been together before. So, okay, there's some of you in here. So you're wondering what, the, what this is going to be all about. Um, so we'll get to the word in just a moment. Genesis chapter 37. We're going to be in Genesis 37. Genesis 45 and Genesis 50. We're going to kind of hopscotch into three. One story told in kind of three scenes of one, one storyline uh, today. Uh, before we do that, I just want to let you know, uh, very blessed. My wife wishes she could be here. She's with the grandkids, and she, again, is back in California. I'll be back there tomorrow, finish out my, my vacation time. Um, but she brings her greetings, and we have had just a very uh, busy uh, life. Uh, um, so busy, busy year and busy month. My, my mom's last time I was here, I think my mom had just died. And then we actually held off the, the burial till a week and a half ago up in Washington. We buried her on her birthday. And so we had a big family reunion up there. It was a great time, um, to, to do that and gut wrenching. And so, um, yeah, every time I'm with my mom, her passing her burial, I come to eternity church. That's interesting. Um, by the way, it's a great name, too. Uh, you got the best name of a church. And, uh, and I love these shirts, Be Brave. This is all good, all good, all good. Um, so um, I had a recent uh, book just come out. It literally it gets out on Amazon, I think, in the next two days. Um, it'll be in the stores. But um, I, I've come before with this particular leadership book, The Language of Influence. I brought a few more of those. Um, those have been here twice. And if you have got one and want some more, there's some more out there. Um, this particular book is brand new. I was approached a couple months ago by uh, Tyndale uh, House, and they wanted to do a book on the heels of this 2020-2021 world that we've lived in, in which everyone is raw and they're somewhat been emptied 
and our world has turned on each other in a way that I don't think any of us in our lifetime has seen. The biting and the devouring of each other, it's, it's unprecedented. I've never seen it um, outside of like real war going on around the world. Uh, but the emotional, psychological warfare of us biting and devouring each other is, is unbelievable right now. And, and people have been behind the scenes working their guts out to keep our country great and to keep our country safe. They wanted to do a gift book, and I was privileged to uh, be asked to write the short stories and the captions for this book. And it's, it's a book of pictures, and it's, it's for first responders. This book is a gift to police officers, firefighters, EMTs, uh, nurses, inner city school counselors, everybody that is behind the scenes, either as a volunteer or works professionally as an on-call hero. This is a tribute to those living on the front lines. And so I just want to show you what this is about real quick. I, I have some very small, just one and two page little stories that I write. But this first photo in the book is worth the book. Um, it's an iconic photo that I had never seen. Um, it's a picture of a black police officer with a tear coming down his cheek. It's just one of the most beautiful photos I have ever seen in my life of this police officer. And this, the, I, I simply write, rarely is the wind at your back at precisely the moment you need. It's usually in your face making you stronger. And I think that's what we have all experienced is the wind has been in our face, but it's made us stronger. I love this picture. It is of a firefighter just covered in soot. It says, when you serve others, the bitterness from not being served is washed away. And then this last one I want to show you is just a picture of a wounded uh, soldier carrying another soldier off the battlefield. And I simply write, what made the good Samaritan good was that he removed abandonment. In other words, it's not about turning something wrong into something right. It's about turning someone lonely into someone loved. And so this, this book has uh, honoring statements, pictures for nurses, school teachers, everybody that's been working behind the scenes as on-call heroes. And so uh, people are getting it. Um, um, last week I debuted it. I was, spoke to about 1,400 people, and they sold 640 of these books. That's astronomical. Uh, uh, amount of books. People were getting them for their their family members who are nurses, police officers, firefighters, school teachers, just being able to say thank you. They're putting a little card with it and said, I just want to thank you for what you've done. Uh, business people, uh, a mayor out here from a neighboring town uh, got 60 of these for all of his police officers and firefighters. Uh, that's happening. We're getting lots of mayors and uh, business leaders who are buying these for school teachers, police officers, uh, firefighters, EMTs in their community, putting a little gift card. It's written in a way you would give it to a non-Christian. There's Bible verses that are interspersed, but it's really, it's really thought through in a way that would be a great conduit and gift uh, for those um, that are nearby your life and in this community. So those are available out there when we're done. How many have, um, it, you would say at this point in your life, you have You've exhausted and fully gone through, A to Z, everything that can be known or needs to be known at this point in your life about Jesus. You've, you've, now you're just reviewing notes. You, you've already exhausted everything that you could ever know about Jesus, A to Z. Now you're just kind of going back over some old notes. Um, it's funny how some people think when they hear a story in the Bible, like, oh, I've already gone over that uh, before. Like we've exhausted. Remember, Jesus wrote the whole Bible. They didn't interview Jesus and put his words in red. 
you know, in the New Testament. Jesus is the author of all the scriptures. And remember, you can't love Jesus but be embarrassed of the Bible. There, there's no Christianity like that. So the Word of God is our guide for life. And even the controversial things, someone said, man, I don't, there's so much judgment uh, in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And I go, well, you, have you read the end of it? Uh, because the end of the book is more compelling than the first half of the book. It, it does culminate in judgment. And so when people say, don't judge, don't judge. Well, this kind of, this whole thing is about judgment. And that's, that's, that's what the devil doesn't want you to see, is that the only way to escape judgment is through the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And so, um, don't run from this book. Uh, don't run from this book. The promises of this book, the principles of this book, the beauty, the love letter in this book, and even all the ugly family story, the human family stories in this book. It has terrible stories of people killing each other and raping each other and lying about each other. And God, why'd you put that in your storybook? And, you know, the Old Testament is much bigger than the New Testament because it took us a lot longer to realize we're lost. You know, it takes us a long time to realize that kingdoms and money and power and prestige doesn't save us. That's why the Old Testament's bigger than the New Testament. Explaining Jesus Christ and salvation is a much simpler thing to comprehend than, than really grappling with how lost we are. And so I love the Word of God, and it is, it's my guide for my daily life, my eternal life. And uh, remember, you just can't love Jesus but be embarrassed of what the Bible says about life and the things that we face. It all reconciles if you will come at it humbly um, and study it with an open heart today. So, but, but it also is, it's like elusive in one way. It, it's designed in such a way that keeps us seeking. There's a powerful verse in the Bible that tells us this. It's a weird verse. It's the last verse in the book of John, the gospel of John. Now, John's interesting because every chapter in the book of John contains something that's not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So the gospels are oftentimes studied the synoptic or the gospels of sameness Similarity, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are studied because they have a lot of similar stories. John has a lot of stories that are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but John has the most unique literature of all the Gospels. Every chapter of the Gospel of John has something that's not in anywhere in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It's fascinating. But when you think about John, John, where did he get that revelation from? I'm just speculating. But I think the fact that John was laying his head on Jesus's chest at the Last Supper, that moment of great tension. He was pressing into his to intimacy with the Lord and really laying against the heartbeat of the Savior in that time of crisis, the Last Supper. I think there's something there in that image. Um, I think there's something in the fact that John is the one who boasted. See, Peter said, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. You love me. I love you. I love you. I love you, Lord. He boasted in his love for the Lord. John, however, boasted in the Lord's love for him. He said, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And if I'm going to brag about something, I want to brag about God's love for me, not my love for God, okay? Because I'll probably be caught short uh, in, in boasting about how much I love the Lord, and that gets tested and examined. So John received this. John says in chapter 21, <coughs> verse 25, take a drink of water. I told the second service that when you're a public speaker, when you drink water publicly, it feels like that took 20 minutes uh, for me to drink the water. It takes like super slow. Everybody's looking at you and it just feels like, okay, that was 10 minutes. That, that. So John says in his last verse, 
He said, if everything about Jesus was written down in books, it doesn't say that there's not enough books in the world to contain everything we need to know about Jesus. It doesn't say that if you took every book and turned it into a Jesus book, that there would not be enough books in the world to hold the knowledge of Jesus. It says something different. It says, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. It's not that there's not enough books in the world. There's not enough world to hold the books. If you do not have a planet that would be big enough to, to hold or contain the books if every detail of Jesus had been committed to earthly language. Think about that, man. Let's lay down books side by side, corner to corner. Fill the continent of Africa. Fill Australia. Tip of the hat to Pastor Jesse. Uh, North America. Fill Canada. Fill, go to the deserts. Go to the mountains. I've been to Mount Everest. I got a chance to climb up to base camp a year and a half ago. <coughs> it's huge. Haven't seen anything like that in Iowa, by the way, like I see when I went to Nepal. Put a book side by side, corner to corner. How many books are we talking? How about we drain the oceans, the lakes, and the rivers now? And how about we begin mapping out the floor of the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean with books? The Bible says there's not enough world to hold the books. Yeah. Not simply enough books in the world. So next time you get dry in your worship, you feel like, yeah, same old, same old. I already know that. Why press in? Why pursue? I believe that a gathering like this, that Jesus can give us a glimpse of something we've never seen yeah. if we will engage and listen for a few moments. Yeah. And I pray that God would help me as a preacher uh, to be anointed and fascinating in my presentation of God's word so you would track with me because you just never know. You might see something you have never seen before in the entirety of your life. Go to uh, Genesis chapter 37. We're going to pick up this story that has three significant scenes in it. We're going to talk for a moment about Joseph and his relationship with his brothers. We're going to talk for a few minutes about what forgiveness in the age of justice looks like. What does forgiveness, when forgiveness is tested by the modern age of social justice, I want to show you something in the Bible that will, might upset you in a way, but it's not my words, it's the word of God that we are accountable to. And I pray today we would throw ourselves on the rock of Jesus Christ rather than letting that rock fall on us. So we're going to throw ourselves today onto the truth of Jesus let it break us, not destroy us, but break us for the good, that we can be healed and remade as truth shapes us instead of us trying to play Rubik's Cube with, with the truth of God's word, which is a waste of time. It's a fallacy. The Bible says, verse 17 of chapter 37, so Joseph went after his brothers. This is the last sentence in verse 17. By the way, I've been preaching without PowerPoint. I've gone PowerPoint free for about seven months now. Uh, I, I, I'm off PowerPoint for a while. You say, man, this guy's not using notes. Um, I, I just, 
got off PowerPoint for a while. I've just been preaching from my Bible so I can look at you and you're not looking past my head. At the end of the service in a few moments, I think I am going to show you though a powerful video that will bless you uh, before we leave this house. But PowerPoint, man, years ago, 1998, I did my first PowerPoint doing a service and um, I was introducing it and it was all cool. We were doing a service, on a series on Revelation. I was doing a, a theological, systematic theological thing on the life of Satan, demons and demonic and I'm really on Satan that Sunday. Gave my notes. We're going to debut PowerPoint for the first time. Going to be super cool. Got about a thousand people sitting out there in 1998. Here we go. We're PowerPoint. We're PowerPoint church. And so I gave the notes to the guy. He plugs it in the computer and it spell checked. It did something weird to it and changed the name Satan uh, to Stan. And so I basically had for the next 40 minutes all of my verses on Satan reference Stan uh, that we need to resist Stan and he'll flee from us that Stan would be in the lake of fire. And so I had a bad experience day one with PowerPoint. Of course, you know I'm being truthful. Guy walked up, said, hey, man, it's my first Sunday. My name is Stan. And I said, Stan, I know I, I apologize uh, for all of that. But I've just kind of been PowerPoint free. It's by design. So don't, don't think, hey, where's the notes? I, I can't learn. I can't listen. Yeah, just hang with me. Here we go. Uh, um, so it says that Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Verse 18, chapter 37 of Genesis. When they saw him from a distance, the brothers saw him. He came close to them. They plotted against him to put him to death. Are you serious? Let's just stop right there. I thought your brothers are supposed to protect you. And this ain't younger brothers wanting to kill the mean older brother. These are the older brothers who are plotting to kill their youngest, one of their youngest brothers, Joseph and then Benjamin. I've heard people say, man, you can say anything you want about uh, me, uh, but if you say something against my, no, I can say anything I want to my family. I, I, can, I rip on my family, we fight. You say something against my brothers, man, we're going to come after you. I thought that was the natural law. What's going on here? Why would brothers collectively plot to kill? How can murder, how can he even get to this stage? I've been mad at my brother. My brother, Doug, we fought a few times. You know, he was bigger than me. By two, I, I was bigger than him. He was two years older. I was bigger than him. That was the problem. He didn't appreciate that. So, but he was stronger. He could throw a rock. Father beat me arm wrestling. And when he punched me in the shoulder, it just hurt for days. So my brother was kind of the dominant alpha male. We get in fights. One time I bit him on his shoulder blade real hard. And he, he bled through his t-shirt. And dad saw the blood and, and, and the pattern of my teeth and knew something had happened there. So I... I got into some fights with my bro. Um, I never plotted to kill him. They plotted collectively to kill him. Then one of them, they said they plotted to put him to death. Verse 19, they said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Man, jealousy is powerful. Jealousy can turn you into a murderer. When you become jealous of somebody, and he's not even accomplished, it's simply telling the idea of the future, the visionary, the dreamer. Oh, here comes the dreamer. Now then, come, let us kill him. Holy smokes. The depravity of our lives, that we can deconstruct our world so quickly that we collectively want to kill somebody because they have a dream. This is his brothers. Yeah. 
And it says here, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Because that's what people with murder, they got to come up with a plan. They got to come up with a story. I got to create the narrative to cover my tracks. We can cover our tracks. Cover it up. We'll just create a, a narrative and it'll all fit nicely into the story. But it says that Reuben heard this. Reuben's the oldest brother. And rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said, shed no blood, throw him in the pit that is in the wilderness, but don't kill him, that he might rescue him out of their hands and restore him to his father later. So Reuben kind of partially provided advocacy or was an ally for his brother. A lot of Christians kind of living in this space right here. We do enough, but we don't go all the way in standing for what is truthful because we're overwhelmed by the pressure of the brotherhood, the solidarity of the group. And so Reuben says, let's throw him in the pit. He doesn't speak against that behavior, but he, he wants to keep him from being killed. And Reuben's fascinating. Later on, when the father Jacob is dying, he blesses all the sons and he says something to the sons and he says, Reuben, they're all around their father on his deathbed. I think it's Genesis 49. And Jacob says, Reuben, my firstborn, um, you have excelled, but you shall excel no more. Whoa, okay, pops. Why is that? Because Jacob says, because you're wild like a river and you cannot control your sex drive is what he says. He said, you've had sex with Bilhah, one of, the, one of his concubines or wives. And he, he said, you couldn't control yourself. Now, imagine Reuben, he does this advocacy for his brother here to keep him from being killed, but not really setting him up for a prosperous life, just, just enough. But it didn't offset the fact that Reuben, in another aspect of his life, is a fascinating study, study because he couldn't control his sex drive. He, his life gets smaller as he gets older, as he gets older. He says, you will diminish, you will excel no more. And when you took a census of the tribe of Reuben in the decades ahead when they went in the wilderness and then they settled in the land of promise, the tribe of Reuben got smaller with time, not bigger. And that's what happens when we can't control our sex life. It, it whittles away and destroys our future. The potential, the offspring, the influence, the authority of our life, it diminishes. Something dies when we cannot control ourselves sexually, friends. Truth. Who's telling you that? Nobody's telling you that. Because we're terrified to even talk about it in church. We've lost the battle. But that battle's about to be reclaimed, friends. In love, it's about to be reclaimed. Because the absurdity in our land is, be, is metastasizing, it's becoming visible. I'll, I'll circle back in a second on that. So Reuben says, um, throw him in the pit. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic, which is his dreams. Strip him of his dreams, man. Strip this younger brother of his dreams and because we're jealous of him and we're torn between betrayal, abandonment, and murder. And they're just trying to figure out which is the best path. They throw him in this pit. 
And then they go off and it says, then they sat down to eat. Seriously, you just go on. These brothers sit down and have a meal. We just go on with life. We've thrown our brother in a pit. And we're just going to sit down and eat. Carry on with life. And the guy's in the pit. Then they saw some Ishmaelites in a distance. And they said, hey, let's go sell him to the Ishmaelites. Verse 27. In the brothers list is, okay, that's a compromise. Then some of the Midianite traders, traders passed by, so they pulled him up. They pulled him up. What a great line in the Bible. They pulled him up out of the pit. The Midianite traders, a group of strangers, got to the pit before the brothers. They pulled him up and sold him to the Ishmaelites. I could tell you about three or four significant pits in my life in which it wasn't a brother, a family member that pulled me up. A stranger came by and pulled me up. Sometimes it was in the form of a youth pastor, sometimes a youth leader, sometimes it was a coach. But it's a powerful moment of God's grace when the stranger pulls you out of the pit and not your family. So he's pulled up out of the pit. They don't know this. They freak out. They create a narrative. They dip his clothes in the blood of a goat and tell Pops, Jacob, that an animal ate him. And they go back home, and for the next 20 years, next 20 years, no one looks for Joseph. He's not even a topic of conversation. The dreamer's dead. He's out of their peripheral vision, their, their radar. He's gone, and they've carried on with life. That's the scene of the crime. That's how it looked. Now let's go to a couple pages to the right, and let's go to chapter 43, 44 and 45 of Genesis. I'll do this real fast. Here we go. 20 years went by. 20 years is a long time. So let's say it happened in 2001. Now it's 2021. This year is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Imagine the 9-11. It's been 20 years now since that happened. Fascinated. All my freshmen this year were born after 9-11. They don't even know, weren't alive when that happened. 20 years goes by very fast in life, doesn't it? So 20 years went by. Over the 20 years, the world flipped for the brothers of Joseph. A famine hits and reduces the brothers' uh, authority, arrogance, reduces them to being beggars. So the majority became the minority over those 20 years. Everything turned upside down. Everything flipped in 20 years. The famine drives the brothers to the land of Egypt. They have no clue what happened to Joseph. They don't know that the Midianite strangers pulled him from the pit. They don't know that the Ishmaelites, he made it his way to Egypt and was sold into slavery. They don't know the favor of God or the Moments in Joseph's life where he said no to sexual immorality. He's a single dude and a married lady wanted him. That's a tough thing for a young man. The Bible says that Joseph fled Potiphar's wife. He just fled Potiphar's wife without anybody watching. He just fled. He passed the tests of being in the dungeon. He passed the tests of interpreting other people's dreams while he still had his. He passed all these tests over 20 years. God continued to steadily elevate Joseph to where now he's at the right hand of Pharaoh, a trusted counselor. 
to a wicked, idolatrous leader named Pharaoh in a wicked nation, much like Daniel. In the book of Daniel, the nation of Babylon was wicked. Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked king. Daniel was elevated to be the interpreter of dreams and was known for a keen mind that can interpret dreams, solve enigmas, and solve difficult problems. Joseph and Daniel, huge amounts of the Bible are dedicated to Joseph and Daniel. Not a single verse is negative about them. Span of their entire adult life is chronicled, and they did not take a day off. And they rose to iconic historic leadership spaces in the two most wicked nations in history, Egypt and Babylon. I believe the same thing can happen today. I believe that God can raise up Christians in spaces in this nation in ways that we never thought possible. So Daniel and Joseph are in this space. Now here's, here's the Joseph story. He's with the king. And I got to tell you, this, this story in and of itself is like red meat to the victim crowd. I could preach all over this story and tap into your sense of pity and victimhood and pack these altars. I can do it too, man. I moved 27 times by the time I was 16. I never went to the same school, K through 8th grade. That can tick you off, man. I, I moved without any notice, being ripped away from my friends constantly in my childhood because my dad could not figure out his life. I was caught in my father's war, just being drug all over Colorado, Oregon, Washington. But you know what that did? All of that became my superpowers as an adult leader. People say, you walk into a room, man, how do you just meet people, make people feel friendly? Where's that come from? I said, it is born out of total chaos. When you're in a different school for eight straight years as a kid, you're in a different playground, not a single friend of, of familiarity. Every September, you got to walk into a strange setting as a K, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth. Went to the same school in uh, seventh and eighth grade, then ninth grade, a different school, then 10th and 11th grade, the same school. I constantly spent my childhood meeting people, striking up conversation. Either you fight and get angry, or you develop some mad superpower skills of connection. All of that comes out of that. So here's, here's Joseph somehow being betrayed by his brothers. Brothers. Living with that trauma, that abandonment. Somehow in those 20 years, it transacted into a leader that we're about to describe. He wasn't a victim. This whole world, I deal with it all the time. I'm a college president. I'm dealing with this in my face. I'm in the inner city of Minneapolis, for heaven's sakes. I'm living in this tension all the time of victimization. And I just want to tell all the young leaders here, you are about to go through one of the most important chapters of your life as a Christian. Here's what it's all about. For the last several years, and especially the last year, our nation in mass, young people, are kind of in this big wave of captivity. But as a group, we're just kind of all, we're marching for stuff, we're standing up for stuff, we're, we're all just doing this to do what's right. Suddenly you find yourself in a strange land. And what's going to happen now is, like it was with Daniel, all of the captivity is about to metastasize 
into idolatry. Do you remember the book of Daniel when all the teenagers were out on the plains of Shinar and Nebuchadnezzar built a 90-foot image of himself and he sent everyone out there to bow to the image. What's happening before our eyes is all of the pain and the justice and all the things in America that have been, that have tapped all of our hearts, moved all of us, <coughs> powerfully moved all of us kind of in this general direction now there is a, a new kind of idolatry that's forming that the absurdity is swallowing up the legitimacy. I'm going to say that again. Now we're about to see the absurdity reveal itself. What are you talking about? Absurdity is everywhere, friends. My grandkids, I got 10 of them. I have a kid going to kindergarten this year. The absurdity of telling my kindergarten grandson that he could be a girl is absurdity, and it's not true, and it's a lie. Here's the problem. The captivity is metastasizing into idolatry now, and you're going to have to make a decision on this front row. For the first time, you're going to have to break free from your generation. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out there with thousands of teenagers going, I'm not bowing down to this. This is absurd. This is not true. This is a lie. This is child abuse. I can't do this. And you're going to go, man, everybody in my generation is bowing to this. Except... I might be the only one if I have two friends. I'm not going to bow. I'm going to stand even though I'm about to die for doing it. So this whole group think toward justice is becoming metastasizing. There's total legitimacy. George Floyd died just left of my college. We hosted his funeral. I care deeply about things that bring pain to people, and that was Clearly, no one in America should die like that. Should, can't die like that. We got to stop that, fix that. But friends, the whoosh of it all is moving our nation into total absurdity, friends. The enemy is using the legitimacy of a moment to hijack it into the absurdity of this mass deception upon the United States of America. And I'm, I'm turning 60. I got my little 300 people that are my age that are going to love me till I die, go to, go to my little church, pay my tithes. I'm cool. You guys got a massive decision to make. You got, a, you got the, the Daniel decision. You got the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego decision because the legitimacy of something is becoming the illegitimacy of idolatry right before your face. You're going, wait, wait, I, 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 I can march for this, but I'm not, am I marching for that? Right. And you're about to see something emerge that's going to require a bold choice on your part as spirit-filled believing leaders. You're going to break, have to break free from your generation. So Joseph, Joseph finds himself in the majority now. Real quickly, the brothers are brought back. Bible says, and the brothers didn't recognize Joseph. Ten of them, Benjamin wasn't with them. Ten guys didn't recognize one dude? Says Joseph knew them, but they didn't know him. What? That's crazy after 20 years that he's unrecognizable to them. It's probably gone from 15 to maybe 35. I don't know, these 20 years. 
And he's unrecognizable to his brothers, but he knows that's his brothers. He restrains himself very quickly here. He restrains himself. And he does not reveal himself. And he wants to find out about Benjamin. So he, he orchestrates a way for them to bring Benjamin to him. Finally, by chapter 45, Joseph cannot contain himself. And he says, then Joseph could not control himself any longer with these brothers. These are the people that took him out. They were the ones that took him out. He couldn't control himself. He cried, have everyone go out of the room for me. There was no man with him. When Joseph made himself known to his brothers, he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Remember that. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my dad still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. No kidding. Because their day of reckoning had come. They're now in a back alley with the guy who was the minority, is now in the majority. And they're the minority. The day of reckoning has come. In 20 years, the world flipped upside down. And Joseph is sitting with the scepter and the sword. He's in the place of the majority now. And the oppressors are in the minority. They've been reduced. <clears throat> so what happens next? The Bible says that Joseph wept loud and the men said nothing because they knew they were toast. They're done. He's going to kill us in the next minute. Our day of reckoning has come. Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they're like, he says, they came closer. He said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, friends, we have to tell the story correctly. I'm all for that. I'm all for telling the story. You can't change history. That is the story, okay? We do a Christmas letter every year. We, we do this. We did it for years. The kids, mom and I, we sit at the table. The kids are like little, and we have this cheap, crappy paper from Walgreens with a candy cane. We're putting the Christmas letter on there talking about us. No one reads it. Uh, we send it out to people with a photo. We do it because it's just kind of a tradition. We were doing it again, 2004, living in Michigan. My daughter's a junior in high school. Kids, boys are little. They're all watching TV. They walk over by the table. They see mom and I. We got about half the letters sealed, stamped on the little candy cane envelopes, candy cane paper, little photo. We're doing our thing. And the kids would come by and kind of look at the Christmas letter a little bit and get some food, go back to the TV area. It just, it just was fun. My junior daughter walks over and she goes, oh, so she's reading it. She goes, man, mom and dad, that's a great Christmas letter this year. Wonderful. Hey, do you think maybe next year I can be in it? <laughs> what? We left our daughter out of the family story. I talked about me, my preaching, my travels. I talked about Karen, her conferences she was doing. Talked about the boys' sports championships, everything. We left our daughter out of the family. I, we, Karen and I threw each other. Mother, did you, you didn't know me. Your mother, your mother, your mother. I don't, I'm working with her. And so, no, your dad, your dad's a lunatic. And so we're throwing each other under the bus. And can you imagine if I told my daughter, hey, sweetheart, I, you know, we got half these things stamped, licked, stamps on. Next year, I'll get you a couple extra sentences. You know, we'll, we'll make you a little bigger paragraph. Are you kidding me? The only way we could say we love her is to rip it up as fast as possible and start over so that we could tell our family story correctly. 
I'm all for telling the American story correctly and making sure that we've included our story well. That's different than saying, you're my brothers who sold me into slavery. And now I'm going to make you understand what this has done to me. No, friends. This next verse implodes so much of the social justice movement. Let me just be honest with you. From a believer's vantage point. Here's what it says. I am your brother, Joseph, who so, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves. What? I thought that's the whole purpose. You got to make people feel bad for what happened. Isn't that the whole aim? It says, don't even be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for two years. There'll be five more. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of the household and the ruler of the land of Egypt. Nobody, nobody, the one who betrayed you, abandoned you, molested you, nobody in the Lord can, on the human equation, can set you back. Nobody can set you back. Because when they do those things to you, it's a sent ahead, not a set back. Betrayal is promotion in the kingdom if you transact all of this in the Lord and you create a testimony not a history lesson America needs a testimony not simply a history lesson we got to tell the story accurately and we got to include all the family members in the family story but this whole idea that, hey, man, you sold me out, dad, mom, country, you sold me out. And I'm in a hopeless free fall in my life. Oh, you are without Jesus. But I will tell you, I want to get to heaven. I want to meet this guy. I'm going to worship Jesus, get to heaven, go, I can't believe I made it. Think about it. We're going to be in heaven and we're going to, we made it. I'm not in hell. I'm not in hell. I'm in heaven. I made it. I can't even comprehend what that moment's going to be like. I'll throw my crown down. I mean, I'll worship. I mean, heaven, we made it to heaven. We're not in hell. But someone, I'm going to find Joseph and say, Joseph, you got to help me understand how you did that. How did you do that? And what he did was not only that, there's a little clue. How do you do that? He wept and he kissed and he spoke freely and ate freely and spoke freely to his brothers and he provided for 17, next 17 years of land of Goshen, him and his father Jacob. How do you do that? One is you've got to give your whole story to God and believe that in the darkest ages of your life, worship team come if you will, the darkest ages of your life, when you were in the depths of the pit and man was running your life, 
It felt like man was digging the pit, throwing you in the pit. Strangers are helping you, not your family. It doesn't feel like God exists. You have to believe that in that entire season of life, God was with you. And you have to recognize grace differently. Instead of being bitter about the brothers that put you in the pit, you have to rejoice in the stranger that pulled you from the pit. Okay? And all we want to fixate is on the brothers that put us in the pit. You know, when an apple falls from a tree, it has six seeds and one stem. America's fixated on their stem. The tree that dropped me. The tree they came from. The bruises that they received because the stem. And they want, the devil wants you to be fixated your whole life on the stem of the apple and overlook the seeds inside of you that have nothing to do with the tree that dropped you. You have six seeds inside of you. Potential transformation is in you. It doesn't matter if the tree dropped you on this end, friends. It matters the seed that's inside. Let's bring this to a close. You got to give your whole story to God. And then you got to stop, stop talking about it. The only way to stop thinking about something is to stop talking about something. As long as you talk about it, you will never stop thinking about it. Well, I can't, I talk, I can't stop thinking, I can't stop thinking, because you can't stop talking about it. So the Bible says down here, a little clue, verse 16, now when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Are you serious? How in the world could Pharaoh and the servants be happy that Joseph's brothers were in town? It's not possible, except for one thing, which is the clue. Joseph never talked about it. He didn't bottle it up and bury it. He transacted it with the Lord. Okay. But he didn't try to transact it with man in order to gain pity for the pit. Now think about this. You're telling me over 20 years, kicking into Starbucks with just hanging out with Pharaoh and the friends are going, hey, we're off the clock. We're not running Egypt. Tell me about yourself. Tell me where'd you come from? Oh, let me tell you. They did what to you? They did that to you? Man, I better not ever meet these people. That's what would have been the normal reaction of Pharaoh and the servants of Pharaoh if Joseph had spent his life telling his story and not his testimony. America needs to tell its testimony, which includes a lot of scars and flaws and breakdowns and hypocrisies at its origin as it worked its way through our national psyche the same way you were born with the image of God and a sin nature simultaneously. Both have warred. Which one's going to prevail? I'm praying that the good of our nation prevails. 
not its sin nature, but its, its purposes in the Lord. It's our testimony. So Joseph never talked about all the crap he went through. He wasn't throwing people under the bus constantly from his past as a way to make people feel bad so that they could feel good about them or more interesting or you're, you'll be more interested in me if I tell it this way. He never brought it up. Now let's wrap with the final verse. Flip to chapter 50. This is very fast and we're done. He was betrayed here, chapter 37, by his brothers. 20 years goes by. Now they reunite and Joseph says, don't even feel bad for what you did to me. Seriously? You were betrayed by your family and you don't want, don't want them to feel bad. No, God's got all that. God can help them feel bad. Besides, I see my whole life, man, God used all of this to propel me ahead of you, actually, so that I could deliver the very people who, who betrayed me. Now they all move in. Jacob, dad comes in. They all settle in the land of Goshen. 17 years goes by. Simple math. 37 years ago, he was betrayed. Now, 20 of those, he lives in Egypt, the great reunion. Now they all live together for 17 years. 37 years has gone by. Dad dies. They're at the funeral. They're done burying dad. And they're walking back from the funeral. It says, when, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, after they had buried him, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the evil wrong which we did to him? So they sent messengers and saying, hey, dad said, don't hurt us. And by the way, we'll just be your slave. Joseph cannot believe what he's hearing. Friends, for 17 years, they'd been living in grace and goodness. But in the back of their mind, they still didn't believe they were forgiven. It's harder to comprehend grace than it is to comprehend evil, friends. They're wondering if something they did 37 years ago is still in play. I, we've all got two or three sins, which we are like, eh, I know I'm forgiven of most everything, but I got a couple things. I wonder if... Is that still in play right now, God? If I die, is that going to be the topic of conversation right off the bat, that thing from 37 years ago? It's hard to understand grace. Joseph weeps. He cannot believe they're, they feel this way. He reassured them. He says, man, do not be afraid, for I am, I, for am I in God's place? Which means I'm not the one that's supposed to make you do anything. He said, I've only loved you. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. <clears throat> Therefore, don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them day after day. Friends, every day when you read your Bible, that's like Joseph comforting and speaking kindly day after day to his brothers to help them continue to beat down condemnation and guilt over something that's been forgiven. Every day when we read our Bibles, God is talking to us kindly. 
He's reassuring us, you're saved, you're loved, you're forgiven. It's under the blood. We have a great future and a hope. I don't hold your past against you. Every day we read these. He comforts us. He speaks kindly to us day after day. If you're not in this book and having those words of comfort and kindness spoken to you every day in the Bible, the devil will inhabit that vacuum and tell you that what you did 37 years ago is still in play, that God has a grudge against you and you had better be afraid and the best you can ever be is a slave. We'll be your slaves. What? You're my brothers, not my slaves, but we're afraid and we feel condemnation and the only reason you didn't do this is because dad was alive and now dad's dead and now we're in big trouble. That's not God's opinion of us. That's not his plan for us. I'd like us all to stand across this room. We're going to pray here at the end. I'm going to play a song for you. This is unconventional. This is a different way to end a service. We're going to be done. I heard that Pastor Jesse usually preaches till 4 o'clock, so we're not even, it's only 12.20 right here. We're, I'm right on time. I love that guy. But I think we need a massive reboot in this room when it comes to understanding the biblical pattern of forgiveness. First of all, God loves you. And when your brothers and your family or your nation throws you in a pit, God sends the Midianite stranger to pull you up out of the pit. And I bet everybody in this room can talk about somebody out of nowhere that should have been your family, but they weren't. But God sent the stranger to lift you up. Okay. And then I don't care what you've been through. If you and I fail the private tests, you know, Satan went in the wilderness, took on the devil at the beginning of his ministry because Jesus understood that you must defeat Satan privately before you defeat him publicly. You must defeat Satan personally before you defeat him professionally. And all of us are going to be tested in some way by Potiphar's wife. We're going to be tested by the sexual invitations of this society. And at some point, you have to flee. You have to flee. The single guy has to run from the married lady. You have to flee. We got to flee. Got to flee. Uh, Bathsheba, we got to flee. We got to flee uh, Delilah. We got to flee. We got to flee the, the men that come after us, the women that come after us. We got to do what's right, whether we're single or married in this room. If we don't pass the private personal test and defeat the devil there, then we're going to have no authority to defeat the devil in public spaces. And so, but in that quiet 20 years, man, God is, you're winning battles. And when you fail, you run as quick as you can to the Lord. I have failed. I have sinned. I've had to confess my sin to the Lord. We all in this room have fallen short. Some people take that as a license and say, well, I'll just, you know, I've got this get out of jail card thing. No, friends. We've misinterpreted the greatest risk of mankind was the invitation to grace. Because we can use it as a license to sin. Or we can use it as a pathway to live a holy, dedicated, worshipful life, worshipful life for the love the Lord has given to us. Now, we pass that test and then, then the people come into our life who've hurt us and either we, we assign to them our story. 
I'm not assigning my story to anybody. I don't assign it to America. I don't assign it to my neighbor. I don't assign it to my dad. My story is entirely in the hands of God. And he has redeemed every pain and pit in my life to position me as a voice of deliverance for people. Okay? That's how you have to give your whole story to God. Your whole story to God. And you got to trust him with that. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. That's one reason why I love my job so much. I get to be at that university every day and water this earth with kingdom leaders um, who are not going to bow to the idolatry that's metastasizing in front of our face. We're going to be compassionate. We're going to love people. We're going to help comfort the George Floyd family. When, it, when God puts that right in front of your face, you got to do something. But we're not going to be swept away into the absurdities and the lies of this age that are all mixed and intertwined together. We need clear teaching, clear pastors, clear leaders who will help people see and hear what is truthful and what is deception, friends. I'm so grateful that Eternity Church um, is a truth-telling church. You know, people don't care what you built lately. They don't care, Pastor, what you built. They just want to know this. Are you still telling the truth? You still telling the truth? Or are you just swept away? Stay a truth-telling church, Eternity. I love coming here. You guys are so kind. I've over-preached my time here. I'm going to let Pastor come and lead in some closing prayers here in some direction. Um, I'll be out there. Please come by. This is a great, great gift to give to people. Get one for yourself. Get it for a group of police officers, firefighters, nurses, um, anybody you can think of that you would want to bless. They don't have to be Christians. It's, it's a great gift to give to non-Christians uh, as a way of your love. Father, we just ask today for a fresh reboot when it comes to kingdom forgiveness, Lord. I believe when Joseph was in the pit, he heard some version of this song, that you were choosing him, you were with him, and that he did not need a single thing from a human being to flourish and thrive. If encouragement came, if good things came, it was just simply gravy. But Lord, you were everything to him. So Lord, if there's someone in this room who just that's just been abandoned, they are in the pit and this and I'm the stranger that came by today to lift them out of that pit with the word of the Lord. Let it be Jesus right now. And now Lord, change our thinking if we've been thinking for 37 years that your forgiveness has not washed my sin. I release that lie and that condemnation, Lord. You speak kindly and comfort me every day when I read my Bible, Lord. I'm with you. You're with me, Lord. I know it. Bless Eternity Church in Jesus' mighty name, Pastor. Well, thank you so much for listening to this message. If you enjoyed it, be sure to check out our other episodes. If you would like to connect with Eternity Church, please visit myeternity.com and follow us on Facebook at MyEternityChurch. We'll see you next week. Love